Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the RIP Tour Podcast. I am your tour guide, Tim. And welcome to a very, very special show today. We are all three of us are very, very excited for our our guest that is on with us today. We are going to get to him in in one second. But I can't do this show by myself. So let me introduce the other tour guides. Ash, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, Tim. Yeah, how, how's it going? I'm very excited for this episode. Um, more than one we've done in a long time, for sure. Yeah, I'm excited too. And uh, thank you for asking. And then our other tour guide, Gary. What's up, my guy? Hello. Happy Easter, everybody. Oh, I yes. am uh, very, very excited for this show. I'm not going to lie. Very nervous because uh, I've been a huge fan for a while, but uh, for the most part, very excited. Excellent. Excellent. So let's, get, let's just get to the guest. Our guest is none other than David Weiner, who's a content producer, an acclaimed documentary filmmaker, a magazine editor-in-chief, uh, award-winning journalist, the writer, director, creator of In Search of Darkness. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, guys. Happy to be here. I may be all those things, but it's never all at the same time. Man, that'd be, I, I don't know. That's something if you can do that. <laughs> Although I, I've, I've been known to juggle and spin lots of plates. All right, fair enough. Um, okay, so it looks like you are a jack of all trades, David. We're just going to get into it. Not only are you a filmmaker and a producer, you're also an editor, podcast personality, and an award-winning journalist. Definitely a very impressive resume. Uh, but why don't you start by telling us and the listeners just a little bit about yourself, your background, and what led you to this amazing career? Yeah, sure. Thanks. And I'm glad you think so, because I, 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 I have fun. That's what I could say. Is, uh, I grew up in upstate New York. Uh, and I was a seventies kid and an eighties teen. And I, I just, I just soaked up as much culture as I could growing up. And a, a big formative element of who I am today was watching monster movies and, and classic universal monster movies, hammer horror movies, uh, Godzilla movies, but also things like Star Trek, Planet of the Apes. And of course, I'm, I'm of the generation that got to see Star Wars in the theater when it first came out. So I, I was around for the before times, and I had plenty of t- fun in the before times. But there was that one day that we all walked into that theater and then walked out an entirely different healing being, she's Star Wars. And uh, I was one of them. And that transformed me from someone who loved to watch and, 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 and eat up pop culture. And all of a sudden, now I was interested in how it was made. How, how do I make people feel as excited and enthusiastic and, and exhilarated as I felt walking out of that theater and wanting to go again and again? How did they make these, these, these amazing special effects? Who's the person who gets to control it all like a big puppet master? And that kind of uh, set me on a road to wanting to be in the entertainment industry. Uh, and that was my dream. And I, I followed that. I went to film school. Uh, I, I headed my car out west and went to Los Angeles and Hollywood and worked on movie sets and worked in, in the office and everything from development to, uh, you know, whatever I could get my hands on to be part of the entertainment. It's a very long story because I've been around for a while and graying around the temples, but uh, everything from uh, entertainment journalism to uh, running a magazine to now making documentaries to... Uh, Fundamentally, it's all about, for me, interviewing the people who made these movies uh, is, is something that I love to do. And so uh, if I could do it on camera or on the page, 
uh, talking to the people who were in front of the camera, behind the camera, uh, creative geniuses, uh, and, and not only picking their brains, but finding out that they're just cool human beings. That, that gives me the ultimate satisfaction. That's awesome. Uh, I, I love the fact that you're from New York, so you are my fellow New Yorker. Oh, okay. So I'm, so I'm just going to ask. So when, when people ask you, you know, hey, where you're from, upstate New York. So where is upstate New York to you? You know, it's funny. What, what is upstate New York? Well, Correct. like, I guess I am from the New York City area because I grew up in Westchester. I grew up in Scarsdale, New York. Oh, um, we are from the same uh, area. I am also from Westchester County. Where are you from? I am from a little hamlet called Shrub Oak, which is just right next to Yorktown Heights. Oh, you're by Yorktown. Okay. My Correct. roommate, yes. my roommate Max, was from uh, Yorktown. I, oh, I went awesome. To, I went to school in Western Massachusetts in the Berkshires to Muskegon, Berkshire, uh, during high school. And then uh, I went to Ithaca College in upstate New York, which is really upstate New York compared to Westchester, central New York, by the Taylor Lakes, uh, and by Lake Cayuga. And so, um, yeah. You know, but my family, it's all complicated. Like, when it, I, I can never keep an answer simple. You, you guys are going to find that out today. You can say, what's the one thing you like? And I'll just talk to you. <laughs> curtail myself. But family's from Chicago, you know. Uh, but I was born uh, in Bronxville, New York, and I grew up there, you know, in, in Scarsdale. And, but they That's all awesome. went back to Chicago, so they're in Chicago now. But I was there two years. So where am I from, really? I don't know. Home is where the family is. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, David, we're going to get into the questions. So while while we're talking about New York stuff, and apologies to the the Brents for, or you already, to to talk about the, but um, (laughs) uh, how how old are you? Or what's your age rate? Just so I can get some pop culture context. Go ahead, Gary. Well, well, Tim was because I, I am the elder of the group. I am 50. Oh, okay. So, do you remember things like the 4:30 movie and WPIX? Uh, oh, WPIX, absolutely. <laughs> okay, there you go. You passed the test. You are indeed from the area. Okay, I am. Yes. <laughs> all right. All right we're gonna, no, it's all good. I love it. I could talk New York, and you know, I, it's the one thing. Like, so when you talk about it, so like, what's the one thing you miss from New York? I always say it's the food. Ah, yes, real pizza. <laughs> Real, real pizza. pizza, real greasy pizza. Yes, and then maybe the fall. Since I live in Florida, I've been down here now over twenty years, so I do miss the fall. That's about it. I don't miss the snow. You can keep that. <laughs> yes, <Yep>. exactly. <laughs> so, all right. I'm sorry. Me. I'm sorry. We're going off the rails already, and we're talking about New York. Okay, so Gary is gonna is gonna hit you with the uh, the first question we have. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So we know you were a long time writer slash interviewer for Entertainment Tonight. How was that career path and how did it help shape where you are now? Uh, it was very formative for me uh, because it's funny when I came out to Hollywood, the first thing, the first dream I had was to be running around a movie set uh, with, a, with a, a walkie and a, and a headset and yelling, rolling and cut and working with actors and, and directors and creative people. And uh, it was a dream come true. But you realize after about four years of standing on your feet, 15, 18, 20 hours a day on movies, TV, commercials, videos, it's kind of a little bit of a challenge. And you realize if you have a career path where you want to make your own movies, you have to create your own opportunities uh, to be, 
you know, making a movie, uh, or no one's going to hand a script to you or a directing job uh, to do it. So I, I got off the set slowly but surely, uh, and, I, and I wanted to get into development. And I found development to be challenging too. Uh, but development is uh, what that essentially means is finding projects and, and cultivating them to get them uh, made, packaged, you know, uh, a green light and get it made ultimately, you know, to a studio or an independent producer. After doing a lot of that, I, the internet and, and, and the infancy of the internet and online programming was, was very new uh, in the 90s. And I, I fell into that path. It's a long story, but I'll keep it short. And once I realized I was uh, not directing movies, but all of a sudden I get to write, do entertainment journalism, and write about it. So I realized that I was in the plan B phase of my life, where if I'm not making my own movies, if I'm in the entertainment industry and, and writing about entertainment, still in Hollywood, and still surrounded by all this fun stuff, I would be a very happy person in my life. And uh, it, I, I was part of the dot-com boom and bust, and so I'd be part of these startup companies that would just throw money at a website and then realize that they rate nobody have money. And so, you know, they, they'd hire uh, a writing staff or they'd hire all sorts of people, and then you know, we would wait six months to a year later, they'd say, all right, just downsized. Bye-bye. Um, so when Entertainment Tonight came along, I had made enough friends in the industry and that, that, that quarter of the industry that uh, I had been downsized for like a third time from an entertainment website and someone said, there's an opening of Entertainment Tonight online. You know, are you interested? And my first thought was, absolutely not. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, like, like a moth to the flame. You think I'm going to just, I'm going to do it again, you know? But I realized, you know, when, when you look at the reality up here, Brands and stuff. I'm just, I'll look at it like a freelance job. You know, I will go if I can get the job and get through the door, I will work at entertainment to my online uh, until and until I can get my act together in, in other areas. Um, and I figure maybe there's some more longevity to this particular job because Entertainment Tonight's been it's, it's the number one syndicated show, entertainment show in the world. It's the one that started it all. This was, you know, ET Online is almost like a marketing the show it's not like some startup so i gladly took the job um and what i figured would last about six months or a year ended up being a 13-year path uh at entertainment tonight and and it was there where i'm in the trenches writing about everything from set visits and 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 celebrity duis and marriages and deaths and and arrests and you know, covering award shows and doing red carpets and, you know, what, what have you. I just, it, it's always a very intense environment uh, uh, working there. But, uh, I mean, I would be on call like a doctor, uh, like once a month, where, you know, I would just pray that no one, you know, no terrible thing would happen to a celebrity. You know, Julie Roberts stubbed her toe. I was in big trouble because I dropped what I was doing and write about it. So, um <laughs> It's, it's something that was uh, uh, very formative to me because I learned how to work with uh, uh, studio publicity. I got to know those people. They got to know me. 
Uh, I got to do all sorts of interviews, whether it was on the phone, in person, on a set, on a red carpet. I really got to hone my abilities in terms of interviewing and how to get a great interview. I had access to just the best material ever, you know, because the, the number one show was getting this stuff first on the red carpet or in a set visit or to get. Um, and, and it's there that I got to sit across from my heroes, like everyone from, uh, you know, Harrison Ford to Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, uh, and it's just super fun to be able to do that and to have the privilege of doing that. And so by the time I left there, uh, and I'll wrap this one story up. The time I, I left there, uh, when I, my next move was to go to famous monsters, film lab, and, um, and run that, well, not run the magazine. I was mag, I was a senior writer there, uh, while I was at entertainment tonight for fun for me. Uh, and then when entertainment tonight said, thanks for playing. See you later. I, I, I left there. Um, and went and became the managing editor for famous monsters. Uh, but it was very short lived because the editor who hired me, uh, um, Ed Blair, a wonderful guy, uh, he was on his way out. And next thing I knew, I was uh, executive editor of the magazine I loved as a kid. So I'll stop there. <laughs> There's more. Yes, we 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 actually are going to come on to famous monsters of film lines. I'm glad you brought that up as well. But (laughs) just before we touch on that as well, David, let's just kind of touch on the horror genre, just holistically, I guess. What is it about that genre that piques your interest? And have you always been a fan of horror growing up? I've always been a fan ever since I was a kid glued to the television, but also like my... My public library would have movies on Sundays, and you could go and sit and watch, and essentially it's like a babysitting service for my parents. But I got to watch some greatest movies I'd ever seen, um, and, and one of them that I saw for the first time was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, and that was just like the most, one of the most entertaining things I'd ever seen, uh, because you had all the greatest, world's greatest monsters terrorizing Abby Costello. It was hysterical. I've always been uh, a lover of fantasy. You know, Ray Harryhausen and Sinbad movies. And uh, I, I loved, Lord of, yeah, let Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings animated, uh, things like that. Uh, but sci-fi, you know, was my bread and butter and horror was something I absolutely loved. And if, if you could meld all three, all the better for me. So I've always been attracted to the creativity of the genre, the escapism of the genre. Uh, the, the malleability subgenres. And, um, ever since I was a kid, i it, it's just been the creative escape for me. Uh, and that's why I love it to this day. Uh, if, if you put me in front of a drama, I'll watch it and I'll enjoy it. But especially at my, uh, these days, the way the world is, usually if there's too much reality belief, beats the Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So we saw you were a senior writer and then a managing editor of the revival of the famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Uh-huh. Uh, can you talk to us about that role and how fun it was to deep dive on some of those famous movie monsters? It was the best because uh, also it was one of those things where uh, Famous Monsters is the magazine that, that first came out in 1958. Boris Ackerman was the editor. Uh, Jim Warren was the publisher. Uh, and, and it's a magazine I read as a kid. It's a magazine that spoke to me from the newsstand when I was a little kid where 
I had just seen the seventh voyage of Sinbad, and then on the newsstand there was Cyclops staring back at me on the cover of Biggest Monsters, and I knew that was me. Um, cut to many, 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 many years later, you know, I got into Fangoria and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you get older, and those are the things from your childhood. You know, one day uh, I'm at Entertainment Tonight, and I'm running from a junket of Star Trek into Darkness. Um, to a screening of The Hobbit, and the guy in front of me was wearing a famous monster sweatshirt. And uh, I said, great sweatshirt. And he said, thanks. And it could have ended there. But I said, you know, I loved this magazine when I was a kid. It's, it's just such a great magazine. I hope cool is that. And he was like, well, that, I'm the editor of the magazine. This was Ed Blair. And he said, well, what wow. do you do? Who are you? What do you do? And I said, oh, I, I'm David. I, I, I work in entertainment tonight. I just ran, out, ran from the junkie at Star Trek The Darkness. He said, oh, hey, I've been looking for someone to write an article bridging the original series with the new J.J. Abrams, you know, movies. How would you like to write it? And right there on the spot, he offered me an opportunity to write for the magazine that I just was a kid. That's and, awesome. Um, I jumped at the chance, and uh, I, I said, if you give me a little more time, I will see if I can get J.J. Abrams. He said, by all means, that'd be great. And by hook and by crook, I eventually got J.J. Abrams. And... Um, he loved it. He loved the article. He invited me to write more. Um, and so when Entertainment Tonight said, see you later, you know, they, they sort of had a slow bloodletting of a lot of staffers who had been there for a longer time so they could hire two people in your place for the same price. <laughs> That's the way the world works, right? But uh, it, was, it was ultimately a blessing in disguise, you know? Uh, uh, it was an opportunity with one dark closing in. Of, I, mean, was, uh, I, I was given... Uh, Phil Kim, who was the, the, uh, the new publisher of Games Monsters, gave me carte blanche to create the magazine that I think would be best. And so I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to balance uh, new with nostalgia. And so all the new stuff that was coming out, I would, I would try and get as many marquee names to come talk to us. Uh, and I had the ability to do that because I had all these studio connections from Entertainment Tonight, so it made it much, still a challenge, but it's still easier and up to do it. Uh, but I would do all these retrospective articles as well, looking back at, you know, whether it was Joe Dante talking about Howling, or uh, uh, Michael York and, and Jenny Agater talking to me about Morgan's Run, or, you know, talking to Jenny Agater, you know, twice in, in two weeks, because she's like, oh yeah, you know, uh, because I originally talk, wanted to talk to her about American Book of London, yeah, read that. Uh, and I got to unite uh, John Landis and Griffin Dunn, David Baker, and Jenny Agater on the page for the anniversary <laughs> for that. You know, it's just, and this is one of my all time favorite movies that also, like Star Wars, I was like, I want to know more about how she So to me, it was just an absolute dream. I worked the hell out of myself to get. You know, each it was a bi-monthly magazine, so every every two months we had issue coming out. But it was uh, it was just a pure joy, pure joy to be able to you know navigate and then and then run the magazine. I was a kid, and and, and it was just an absolute score. If I would reach out to someone like James Cameron, saying he'll never even respond to me, but it's the thirtieth thirtieth anniversary of Aliens. Let's at least give it a try. You know, and to have not only have him respond, but to have him talk to me for 45 minutes and thank me 
I said, thank you so much for taking the time. It's like, thank you. Thank me. You know, thank you. You know, famous monsters. I, I used to have that. It, I, I used to hide it in classroom underneath my textbook. <laughs> you know, these guys are the ultimate fans. So that to, to have people like, you know, James Cameron, or Guillermo del Toro or, or Mark Hamill thanking me for the opportunity to be in the pages of famous monsters was incredibly willing. Yeah, I I absolutely love the magazine. The writing's phenomenal. I do have the um, I do have the American Werewolf in London reunion copy oh, as well. I think I, I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure as well. I'll have to look it up, David. I think it has that Rick Baker. I'm sure it's got Rick Baker's signature on the front. Yeah, um, Rick Baker painted the picture, painted the painting of uh, of the Kessler Werewolf on the cover. Wow. Yep. Yeah, and that is that. They're just my. I mean, I, I read Fangoria uh, too as well. But one yeah. thing about famous monster of the film land yeah I, they say don't judge a book by its cover but you don't even need to in this scenario because every single cover is just phenomenal i just love the artwork i love the covers oh my god it's uh, amazing amazing uh, of all the I, I worked with some i mean that was another great element of of making this was uh i i could i could basically commission artists to do covers and uh and not only did we do that but we did uh we usually did two covers sometimes even three per issue uh, with the idea of being able to put it on, you know, t-shirts and merchandising and posters and stuff. And so the idea mm-hmm. was we would have, uh, uh, one for the newsstand, like Barnes and Noble newsstand. Uh, and then we'd have one that went straight to the subscribers and the subscribers usually had the, the big one face of a monster on the cover. Whereas, uh, the newsstand, I, I usually wanted to have something more contemporary. Uh, so I put like Game of Thrones, right? But like Batman versus Superman, you know, uh, that kind of stuff or even Suicide Squad. But I wanted to have, uh, a crowd that was not as familiar with Famous Monsters or maybe yet never, and they'd still see this eye-catching art, uh, and they'd grab it to it. And then they discovered that this was a magazine that has a chest. And I, I got to add also, uh, I, I got to meet Basil Grogos, uh, who, who does some of the, the all-time best and memorable cover art of uh, Famous Monsters. And, you know, he sadly passed on, but just to be able to chat with him and uh, I interviewed him and, and put him in the magazine talking about his, uh, how he fit in the puzzle. Famous Monsters it really helped sell these uh, issues. It's it's dream come true stuff when I think about it, you know, it's like there, there's me who's just doing the work, uh, with a vision, but there's the other me compartmentalized. Who's just like, like screaming as a band throughout just and with every little victory <laughs> and grabbing all these people to be part of this or to share their, their recollections. It's, it's just super duper. Fun. That's amazing. So for those listening, we strongly recommend checking out It Came From The Blog.com, um, which David created, and we will link it in the show notes and on our Twitter. Uh, but deep, deep diving into it, we noticed the title, a Nostalgia Curator. Could you elaborate on the title a little bit and the website? And are you telling us that there's not much you don't know about this genre? I will be the first to tell you that I, there's, there's, there are things that I do not know. I know a thing or two about <laughs> a thing or two, but nothing more and nothing less. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, I there are always people who know more than me. Uh, I, and and the only difference between between you and an expert is an extra expert knows or claims to know one or two more things than you do. 
uh, and so all of a sudden they become. But experts don't know it all either. They just sort of posture. <laughs> With that out of the way, uh, it came from blog.com. Is, uh, I re- fundamentally, it, it sort of served two purposes. When I left Entertainment Tonight, um, and, and sorry, when I left Famous Monsters, um, because they, they were going to stop print for a while. They're actually coming back now uh, in Paducah. But um, I realized I needed to move on. But I, I also realized that with so many of these, the things that I had written, uh, whether it was at Entertainment Tonight or Previous or at Famous Monsters or what have you, uh, all these things disappear. Nothing's permanent. Uh, I mean, I wrote easily, and this is, sounds like an exaggeration, but you do the math. You know, over 13 years, multiple stories a day. I wrote maybe 10,000 stories uh, at, at Entertainment Tonight during my time there. Uh, most of them, I, I would say, was disposable stuff. It's breaking into celebrity news that I just wasn't interested. But I did lots of set visit pieces, and, you know, I'd sit down and, and interview some of uh, my, my all-time favorite people. Um, and, and things would happen where all of a sudden, you know, they just migrated stuff and, and you couldn't get it or they got hacked at one point and they just got rid of probably the first seven years of the stories that I've written. So I will just start with a new site. <laughs> and I, I realized all this, you know, some really hard work and stuff that I really cared about, you know, was, was gone. And so I, I thought, you know what? I, I didn't want to have some ma- major website that was going to suck away all of my time, but I did want a home to show and to home all the stuff that I had done that I was proud of, that I thought was kind of built at the deep culture. Um, and so I moved a lot of that stuff. Uh, I would just sort of reformat it and put it on It Came From Blog. And I would do interviews and stuff like that just for It Came From Blog. And uh, a lot of the stuff that I did, you know, especially Famous Monsters do the on as well, uh, I wanted to start to me some of that stuff in there. So there's a variety of, just observations and, and, and nostalgic memories on there. But there's also lots of the cool interviews that I did that uh, now have a place to live because at least these disappeared. It's permanent. We also noticed, David, that you won the Rondo Hatton Award two years in a row. So if people are unaware what this is, this is an award in a nutshell that awards outstanding contributions to research, film preservation of the horror genre. You have to be very proud of this, considering that you were recognized two years in a row. Like, this oh, is outstanding. Absolutely. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. You guys clearly did your research. Um, I, will, I, will, I will humble brag that I've actually won, I actually won three Rondos. Uh, uh, oh, all right. <laughs> uh, I, my first Rondo uh, that I won was uh, when I was a uh, writer for uh, Famous Monsters, and I'd interviewed Mel Brooks. Uh, the 40th anniversary of Young Frankenstein. And uh, I got best interview of the year, and I got a Rondo for that, and I'm so proud of it. And then when I started running Famous Monsters, we had, we had been nominated for Rondos before, uh, and uh, it was just very cool. It, it is so cool just to be nominated. Uh, and the, the two years that I was the editor, I did win the Rondo, the best classic magazine. Uh, and what's so cool about the Rondo is that <laughs> I, I, it's, it's, it's wonderful. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm giggling like an idiot, man. but it's like, um, 
uh, In Search of Darkness. Uh, the first one got nominated for Rondo. Uh, nominated for Rondo again this year uh, for the In Search of Darkness trilogy. Uh, and also, it came from Blog, uh, is also nominated for Best Website. And I've been nominated several years in a row uh, for the Rondo. And if, if anyone's interested in voting or whatever you'd like to vote, uh, you go to rondoaward.com. Uh, I think it's good until the end of this month. Um, the All the nominees are there. And uh, pick your favorites. And I, I encourage you to do that. And if you want to vote the Best Documentary uh, in Search of Darkness trilogy and Best Website, uh, you know, it came from blog. By all means, I would appreciate that. But, you know, just uh, there's lots of great, amazing talent. Uh, and and uh, Dave Kalki runs the rondos i'm just very appreciative that he does this because it's a it's a niche uh award uh that is given out for the horror and the community that is really needed you know you have the saturn awards which is also cool but that doesn't get as niche as this does and um in search of darkness also got uh part three got nominated for a uh angoria chainsaw so listen i feel like i'm just listing all those wonderful Lens and nominations, but uh, fundamentally, it's very, very cool just to be recognized by your peers in your community that the look you're doing is resonating with them. And so that's really some that's an indicator. I couldn't be pleased. Brag away, brag <laughs> away about your work yeah. for sure. You should be very <laughs> proud. You brought it up. I know, yes. I know. I do. I do have a quick question because you just mentioned Mel Brooks. <laughs> so I just want to know what's your favorite Mel Brooks film. Uh, I would say Young Frankenstein really is uh, my favorite Mel Brooks film. Um, awesome. Yeah, without a doubt, it's that one. Uh, when I was growing up, I got to see a lot of Mel Brooks stuff uh, in the theater. I saw um, High Anxiety uh, several times in the theater. Uh, I was a little too young for Blazing Saddles, but I also saw Silent Movie in the theater. And of Ooh, course, I saw yeah. movies like you know Spaceballs and stuff like that as the years went on. But I, I've always been a huge fan of Mel Brooks and his comedy. Um, I got to Absolutely. interview him twice because I interviewed him the first time at N2 Tonight as well. Uh, and I've met him in person as well when I was uh, in my internet days at uh, AOL's Entertainment Asylum. He and, and uh, Carl Reiner came. I've interviewed Carl Reiner as well, who is also uh, he's from Scarsdale. Did you know that? I did not know that. I knew I knew from New York. I just did not know where exactly. Yeah. Well. Well. Wait. That's I crazy. Be, I might be conflating things now. He's from New York. I I want to say he's from Scarsdale, but I know that the um, the Dick Van Dyke show, uh, takes place in Scarsdale. I'm now doubting myself. But again, I did not know that either. We, we wow. Talked all about we talked all about uh, Scarsdale and and our commonality there because he knows it. I have to check on it. I've found. Paul Reiner, yeah. Scarsdale. Let's see. Are you going to edit this? Is it so? <laughs> you are just on the fly. Our, our listeners listening with bated breath as I as I slowly start <laughs> pushing. We might leave it in, leave them hanging on a little bit. All right. Sounds like that's your plan. All right. So I, I, won't, I won't let people schedule any moment. But uh, then do, do, the, do the research. But I, I, I can't remember either, either he's from 
Scarsdale or if the show took place from Scarsdale, but he's been there many times and he knows the place inside out. And since it's the town where I grew up, uh, it was an absolute pleasure to call him that. And uh, apologies to everyone who decided to change the channel. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, you know, like I, coffee hasn't fully kicked in, so I, I needed to check that one. So before we get into the uh, the thick of it with the documentaries, we do have one last question about your career. Absolutely, I, I mean, I know it's not horror. Guys, asking about this stuff, and I'm happy to talk about it. Well, we found an amazing piece by yourself on Yahoo Entertainment from Mark Hamill breaking the news of the Legacy cast returning for the Force Awakens. Yeah. That. That is a huge scoop from one of the, you know, the world's biggest franchises. How did that information like transpire and how was it interviewing somebody like Mark? And what was the last part of the question? And, and how was it like interviewing somebody like oh Mark and how did all that information transpire? Mark Hamill is the ultimate geek. He's like us. He just has passion for, <laughs> for movies and, and comic books and, and, and great stories and music he's just he's he's one of us uh through and through um and um first time i ever got to interview uh mark hamill was uh during comic-con um he was promoting a movie that he was doing called sushi girl a small movie where he was playing uh, a sort of character uh that was almost like a joker style character in in the flesh and uh because it's a gangster picture and um I got to sit in his hotel room uh, at the Hard Rock uh, Hotel across the street from the convention and talk to him about Sushi Girl when I was at Entertainment Tonight. And, uh, and, and I, it was just a pleasure chatting with him about Sushi Girl. And then I, we talked a little bit about, uh, I remember towards the end, I'm like, well, I got to ask some of questions, but I almost don't want to ask him because I know he's just bombarded. I'm sure he's probably tired of talking about Star Wars. And so I positioned it like this. I said, uh, Mark, if you don't mind with the time that we have left, if I could talk with you about this little movie that you did in the seventies that people might know. And he's like, Oh, sure, sure. sure. I know what you're talking about. I said, so Corvette summer, tell me all about it. And he laughed. laughed. <laughs> and he's like, yes, thank you so much. I was just making a joke about that the other day, you, you know, with a star Wars crowd. I'm like, Oh, you must be here to hear, you know, hear me talk about Corvette summer. Um, and of course we talked about both Corvette summer and, uh, star Wars. And if you go to, it came from blog.com, uh, I have the Corvette summer, summer tale there as well as some of the star Wars stuff. But, uh, when I was at entertainment tonight, several, however many months later, they wanted to, they, his publicist came back to me and said, you know, would you talk to him for the Blu-ray of, uh, sushi girl? And, and this is how, you know, your brain works when you're at entertainment tonight. You're like, uh, well, I'd love to talk to Mark again. I kind of did that already. He already talked Sushi Girl. So my first thought was, I, I'm not sure if the show really wants that. Is twice. But then, the news had only recently broke that uh, Disney had bought Lucasfilm. Uh, and was planning to make a whole new Star Wars trilogy, plus a bunch of sort of, uh, one, you know, standalone, uh, you know, anthology kind of movies you know, like Rogue One, but none of that was named. They hadn't even named J.J. Abrams as a director yet. They were just kind of circling their legs so they could figure out what that was going to be. So everybody was speculating, wow, are they going to reunite the cast? You know, Harrison Ford would never do it, all that kind of stuff like that. And so when I was speaking with Mark, 
you know, I, I, I figured that's a good reason, you know, a good end. I figure I'll talk about Sushi Girl and I could talk about Star Wars. And when I asked Mark about, so, you know, Lucasfilm was bought, uh, was bought by Disney. Uh, you know, can, do you think we will see Mark, you know, Luke Skywalker back on the big screen? That's all I asked, really. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I, absolutely. Well, in fact, we're, we're doing it. All three of us are doing it. You know, we've, we've all been signed on the dotted line. And he just started talking for like 15 minutes about, you know, where the project was, what, what was going to happen, what he knew, which was very little, but he speculated about what he'd like to see. Uh, and I remember he got off of that call and I was just like, uh, I wonder if anyone else has this information. And I just heard the Google and saw that no one else was talking to him and no one else was saying this. And so I just wrote this little story up and pressed send and put it out there. And next thing I know, I realized that I had broken the story worldwide that the original trilogy cast members were coming back to Star Wars. And this was a year, a calendar year before Disney announced it officially. And uh, it was a pretty Lenorty thing to see it get. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> and then Mark really was really is, cool yeah. with famous <laughs> monsters because he was not part of uh, any of the publicity. They, they kept him as this big enigma. And everyone's like, well, how come they're, Mark Hamill's not talking about this? Uh, and he wasn't doing any interviews either. Uh, and I, I reached out through all sorts of back channels asking him if he would talk to us. And since he loved famous monsters so much, he agreed to do it. And he gave me so much more information that, uh, as much as he could, uh, and I put him in famous monsters and, and yet again, because no one else was talking to him, I was the only game in town and that got picked up wide as well to the point where people I did, I put Star Wars on the cover. Uh, I did uh, uh, this art where I included Luke Skywalker in there. Uh, and it was my approximation of, of what he will look like based on this one BTS shot that I found at them with a beer. And everyone was speculating, <laughs> is Luke in this? Is he not? How much, how much of it is he in? Uh, is this what he looks like? This is how Luke Skywalker looks in Force Awakens. And it was fun to be part of that conversation. Wonderful. No, that's really cool. And then, so let's just go into, I guess, what we hit for as well is In Search of Darkness. Uh, we'll yeah. start with uh, start with part one, David. So all of us here, we've watched them a few times now. And just without massaging your ego, you know, we think the whole thing is just phenomenal. I mean, we are avid lovers of all things 80, and in particular 80s horror. And you do use the word journey in the title. I think you do really take the viewers on a journey through the decade. But why don't you talk about the project holistically and you could probably articulate better than we can yeah sure well thanks thanks for the ultimate compliment um yeah this was this is essentially a movie by fans for fans uh it was a crowdfunded project so that's the first validation is that people say this looks cool i want to i want to back this so we so we could get me uh robin block uh who is the ceo of creator vc and executive producer on all the films uh, he had this vision that he wanted to go through the entire decade because we really didn't have a movie that focused only on the 80s. A lot of, a lot of horror documentaries touched on the 80s I and mean, we've lots of stuff about Didn't focus only on that decade. We could, kind of couldn't realize that we were like, really, there isn't a movie out there. Well, this is our, our opportunity to, to do something. 
And then he wanted to go year by year, uh, where you do as many movies as possible. And um, based on that structure, and, and, and we added uh, chapters in between for, for larger context, so 1980 to 1989, covering a bunch of movies each year, talking about a wider scope of, 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 of pop culture, sociopolitical, uh, uh, music, practical effects, the, the final girl, all sorts of stuff, the heroes and the villains. All that stuff gets packed into one movie that ended up being four and a half hours. And um, we got uh, upwards of 50 people, including everyone from, you know, Doug Bradley, Pinhead, and Tom Atkins, uh, the beloved Tom Atkins, to Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs, John Carpenter himself. Uh, It was just so amazing to be able to get all those people to talk about their craft and their memories and, and the, and the movies that they made, but also the stuff that they loved so much as well that they didn't even work on. And, and it was just the ultimate celebration. And, and because the response was so, so positive and we ended up being, uh, distributed on shutter as well. We think this is originally a crowdfunded project that we made to give back to the backers. And so we, we made this movie, we distributed, manufactured and distributed ourselves and, uh, any distribution anywhere else is just is just you know a cherry on top, but primarily it, it's crowdfunded projects for backers, and so we ended up doing that two more times. And every time we got to do more, we got to get more talent, and we got to do a deeper dive, and get more broad in terms of the scope of the decade, which had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of horror movies, and genre films, and cult films, and subgenres. Um, it's a privilege to be able to do it again. You know, every time people say, yes, this is great. I bought it. Please do more. We get to do another. Uh, and so we got to do in search of darkness part three and release it this past fall. And, uh, that is the deepest dive out there for the ultimate horror fans, because it really is the straight, you know, the stuff from the video store shelves that we haven't touched yet and dusty boxes. Yes. Shot on video stuff and are really weird and wacky and wild stuff. And, you know, we go into, you know, Asian, Asian horror during the eighties, which a lot of people didn't know much about because the J horror boom didn't happen until the nineties where all of this stuff became more accessible. So that was a journey in and of itself, but Mexican horror, Canadian horror, Spanish horror, um, talking to more of our horror heroes. So the ISOD trilogy, In Search of Darkness trilogy, has just been uh, a, a gift to all of us. The people who made it, because we love it and it's a love letter to a decade we love so much. But just to have you guys and, and everyone else be so enthusiastic and, and ask for more and use it for your lists and, and, and write things about it on Letterboxd. I, I read those Letterboxd reviews, and listen, not everyone is perfect. Some people say, don't like these movies, but... So many value what it has to offer in terms of a, a time capsule and, and capturing a decade where so many of the films are dismissed as a schlock, yet we all care about them for our own personal reasons. That's what's so important about spending so much time, 14 plus hours, documenting uh, a decade, you know? Uh, and so it's been very cool. And lastly, I'll say is that, uh, you know, uh, and I'm sure we can talk about this later, but we're, you know, we've got a flash sale billing now. So if you missed the film or you really want to get it in your hands, uh, you go to 80shorrordoc.com and you can get uh, either 
I saw it free, or we together as trilogy box set with all sorts of other goodies. But um, it's ultimately, we do this ourselves, so it's not available year-round. You can't get it on iTunes. So if you, if you really uh, are interested or you really enjoy it, and you put it on your shelf, now's the time to grab it. I am so excited for part three. Um, I've held off watching it on Shudder. I, I am one of the backers, um, so I'm waiting for the physical yeah, copy to come so I can watch it, you know, the best way possible. Um, so I, I can't wait for all the goodies to arrive and add to the poster collection in the office. Soon, soon, <laughs> soon. And thank you so much for your backing and thank you so much for your patience. So would you say that the, the 80s was a renaissance era, you know, for the genre? And would you, would you pick a single movie or a franchise that catapulted horror back into the forefront again? Um. Oh, yeah, contemporary franchise, or or back then, back then, put put to put horror back in the forefront. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that that era was was the zenith of of practical effects magic, uh, and and people were looking at at uh, films like Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth and the slasher boom. As as their their excuse to make uh, a low budget film and get maximum return because horror always performs, and and that combined with the the explosion of the new technology of the VHS boom and having a a VCR at home where you can go to a video store or you can go see the stuff on on cable TV which didn't exist you know until the late seventies. Um, all of a sudden, this was a, a brand new avenue of distribution where you could sidestep the Hollywood studio gatekeepers and, and independent producers like Charles Dand, uh, Lloyd Kaufman, Roger Corman. Uh, they didn't have to go to the drive-ins anymore. They could now also distribute this stuff uh, nationwide at your mom and pop videos. And so that was kind of why this, this exploded is because we could really put your blood, sweat, and tears in a project and, and have a return on the investment practically overnight. Uh, and, and you have to keep on making more and more and more. Um, but you have to really thank the franchises for keeping it bought because you look at, you know, probably Friday the 13th and uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street as the most powerful ones that showed that you could keep making movies. The, 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 you can kill the monster at the end and bring them back each and every time and people will climb from them. And, and that elevates all the other ships in the bay uh, in terms of uh, creating original horror is everyone's trying to make their own franchise and an icon that they can, you know, merchandise and market. And uh, so all the one-off movies, uh, you know, whether it's Stephen King with a constant churn of material, good, bad, and ugly, but everyone wants to ad- adapt a Stephen King movie. Uh, he's kind of his own franchise. Uh, and then you have people like, uh, you know, Kubrick, you know, doing, you know, The Shining. People look at all this stuff and they say, the, the, the greatest directors of our time want to make a horror film. You know, uh, Steven Spielberg turned uh, a B-movie into a blockbuster. You know, with jobs and, and everyone mm-hmm. just wants to follow the money. And so what was sort of relegated to, you know, not taken very seriously, all of a sudden horror was sort of mainstream 
Uh, it still struggled during the 80s. People don't realize that, but it, it wasn't always the best at the box office. The franchises did well, and so people would see that, and they, they'd try and capitalize on that, too. So let's just get into Search of Darkness 2, since you just mentioned um, the practical effects from Part 1. Mm-hmm. So Part 2 takes more of an in-depth look at the practical effects used in the 80s horror. Uh, again, used by many industry experts in cast and special effect te- effects teams from the movies featured. Uh, nothing beats those raw practical effects from the 80s. I don't care what anybody says. Those are the best. Why do you think a lot of that more cheesy guts and gore approach used in a lot of movies works so well? Uh, well, in part two, we wanted him for part one and, and our, our, our schedules couldn't align. But we wanted Tom Sadiq, who was an absolute pioneer alongside the likes of you know, Rick Baker and, and Rob Bellatine and, you know, Dick Smith doing like the exorcist before them. Um, Tom Savini above all others really pioneered so many of the effects that looked absolutely real. They it no longer looked like the, it is town. Uh, you know, we try the 13th blues of burning and, and the prowler and things like that. Uh, you know, creep show as well. And so, um, these, these, these guys may, they became, especially, you know, combined with Fangoria magazine, who put them front and center. Uh, these guys became the rock stars of the era. Uh, and, and anyone who was interested in, in how they may be so realistic with the Fangoria and the, uh, other bags, effects magazines, you know, uh, Cinefantastique and Cinefx later, you know, all about special effects, visual effects as well. Um, and, and, and they knew everybody's names, you know, I think, you know, I'm sort of hitting a tangent, but like going back to star Wars, um, star Wars, I knew Ralph McQuarrie's name, uh, on top of everyone else's name, uh, you know, the concept artist, uh, who who really made star Wars, the play star Wars looked. And so you learn to find the names, you know, on cop, you know, all these like concept artists and production designers. You know, like when Alien comes along, like, who are these people at work by seeing their stuff? Sid me to a Blade Runner. So when it comes to practical effects, uh, you know, you're looking at, at all these people, Nick Terrell and so on today, leaving the chart with Walking Dead and, and bringing back Creepshow. Uh, we know these people's names because we know how contributions are. Yeah, that's a, that's a great segue, actually, as well, David, to my next kind of question here you've talked about these pioneers you know you've used that word pioneer there now we are we, we do obviously halloween horror night podcast now in the actual universal studios florida park itself we do have the horror uh makeup show which mm-hmm. references rick baker tom savini and still using all their kind of practical effects tricks of the trade today so it's going to be a subjective question for you so one of our idols in this kind of subgenre is of course rick baker and i'll always mm-hmm. point people to his work obviously in american werewolf in london and also a lot of his peers in the industry also credit his work as an inspiration including savini as well who's i think a similar age um okay. i mean is that fair is is rick the greatest to do it or what are you thinking i think they all have their compartments and they they have they they have their forte you know uh like tom savini will be the first to say that uh his his sculpting uh is is there's he, he's got stronger elements at play 
Whereas Rick Baker arguably is, is the more accomplished sculptor. I'm not saying Tom, Tom Savini is a bad sculptor at all, but he'll be the first to say that, you know, his strength is in other areas, you know, and he still made, you know, fluffy, you know, for creep show and so many other things, but, um, he's more, you know, Tom Savini was more about the body parts, you know, uh, and the realism. <laughs> the destruction of body parts, you know, having, having been in Vietnam himself, you know, and, and sadly seeing the real deal, you know, of clubs that made it quite a big Um, Rick Baker, he's the guy who got the first Oscar. You know, we haven't even mentioned Stan Winston. Stan Winston is a Titan up there as well, but, uh, and Stan Winston was, uh, when, when Rick Baker won a newly created Oscar for special makeup effects for American World from London, the other guy that he was up against was Stan Winston. Um, and so Rick Baker got the spotlight first and deservedly so, uh, and, 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 you know, while he was doing his thing, you know, Rob Bottin was doing the howling, um, uh, Rick Baker was supposed to do the howling. I, you know, I'm sort of, again, hitting a digression here, but, you know, um, all these guys knew each other, respected each other and worked well with each other at, and drafted, drafted off each other and learned from each other. And, uh, it was a big community behind the scenes. It wasn't a big competition. So yeah, Rick has the most Oscars. So by, by that, you know, merit alone, arguably he's the top of the chain. Yeah, I, th I think you mentioned Rob Bottin there as well. I think he does go under the radar a lot in terms of these pioneers as well. I'm thinking the Howling, the Thing. Um, I think the King Kong as well, Explorers, Twilight Zone, the movie. He's got a big long list. Even Robocop, I think he did work on too. Yeah, we uh, did so Robocop. Yeah, we did Robocop. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but I think he does go under the radar a lot, uh, Bottin. That's a, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, yeah. Well, he also, it's sort of, it's by his own choice. Uh, he's sort of the J.D. Salinger of these amazing uh, makeup artists. You know, Catherine Narai, uh, infamous artist who just sort of disappeared. Uh, he does not like uh, being out of control when he talks about this stuff. Early on, when he was uh, doing publicity, you know, his own publicity, talking about working on on all these great projects, uh, he was taken his. I, I don't know what the actual interview was, but uh, his comments would take him out of context and. I think it created a bit of a library with Rick Baker rather than camaraderie. And uh, he, he took himself out of the picture. Yeah. He got burnt out in the industry because he started very young. But he also didn't like uh, self-promoting himself because he didn't like uh, having zero control over the outcome. So that's kind of why we don't, unless you're really in the, the circle of knowing this, you don't really hear his name. So you've probably guessed um, we love all types of horror, including more modern day psychological or elevated horror. Um, do you think today's work is missing those raw practical effects that they were forced to do in the 80s? Uh, I, I actually don't. I don't. Uh, I think a lot of the people who are making these movies now recognize the value. We've sort of come and gone with CGI in terms of in 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 an in a discussion about replacing practical effects with CGI, uh, I think a lot of the people in the industry still value practical effects. And there's a thing called sweetening. And so uh, a lot of people now, what they do is they'll they'll have practical effects as the foundation of anything going on. Uh, you know, Mike Doherty told me about this when he was doing 
Krampus. You know, uh, you have all the practical effects there, and then you sweeten it a little bit uh, with CGI. So you still have a tangible, physical form on screen that people can interact with, on, and, and, and it just the dynamic is, is much stronger when you know that the actors are interacting with something that's real versus, uh, you know, tennis on a pole against the green screen. Uh, but then you can sweeten it so the movements are a little more fluid, you know, or the, uh, the movement is, is a little more dynamic. Or any, Even uh, Joe Dante has said that, you know, he would do Gremlins again with CGI. But he would use practical effects, you know, primarily to, to have these puppets on screen, but he have uh, people in green suits hiding behind it, you know, with rods and, and their hands in, in place where they wouldn't have to hide out of, out of free. So you can get much more controlled movement and much more realistic. So uh, these days, uh, I think all the horror filmmakers uh, love, love, love the 80s and practical effects and being able to use this stuff. Uh, and then, you know, they use some modern trickery to make it even better. I love it. You just mentioned Mike Doherty, which I am a huge fan of. I know Gary is as well. We love Krampus. We love Trick or Treat. Like, uh -huh. Sam, I, to me, I feel like, you know, Sam is an icon. Absolutely. So, let's Sam's get to the... great character because it, it, he's yeah. so... It's just a trick-or-treater, but something's yep. a little off. And, of course, you know, any, any, anyone walking around with a burlap sack on their head, it's scary. <laughs> and, and I'm very excited. part two. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm very excited to see what he does with trick-or-treat, too. I, he's been working on that for a millennium, so. <laughs> I, 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 I cannot wait. I hope that actually Lee gets to see the lighter day, because... You yeah. you will or will not recall that when he made Trick or Treat, it was not least theatric, uh, right, and yeah. part of mine for quite some time. Uh, it didn't it didn't get all media either. Uh, so I I think he got the last laugh, you know, by not only having people love it, but people wanting to, you know, Sam be an icon. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yep, absolutely. Awesome. So finally, the finale and most recent installment of the trilogy, In Search of Darkness Part 3, uh, focuses on straight-to-video 80s horror. So we just watched the Fangoria video with yourself and the wonderful Angel Melanson, where you deep dive into Part 3. Mm -hmm. so we will link that, we'll link that as well for you guys to watch as answer a lot of questions in there about Part 3. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, was, oh. was there a question there? <laughs> it's, it's, it's coming. <laughs> we're getting there okay well all i can say is great things about angel and and phil noble jr and you know everyone who <laughs> contributes to we this is this in search of darkness part three was a bit of a fangoria fest you know richard newby and, and xanthi para para i i can never get her last name xanthi uh apologies again but um you know with angel and phil and and those guys uh all be part of the fangoria crew in one way or another um they are incredibly knowledgeable. They're experts. They know their stuff. Um, and, you know, Michael Gingold in, in previous installments, you know, everyone who is uh, uh, who writes for Fangoria knows their stuff. I'll throw Barbara Crampton in there as well, too. She writes for Fangoria. The Fangoria yeah, she does, every, yeah. Every awesome. issue. Yeah. Yep. And she is in, uh, a quick shout out to Barbara. Um, she is the ultimate, uh, she's like the clam matrix of 
You know, <laughs> she, she had an opportunity to come back and she was, uh, everyone embraced her return. And now she champions it every, every step she, she gets, every, every opportunity she gets, every step she takes. If you look at her online and her contributions and movies that she's making now, uh, her cheerleading for all of us uh, is just so welcome. So it's a great community. I also saw David as well in, in the pandemic. Um, Barbara was directing and she brought her children with her <laughs> out of school out in the pandemic to kind of be on the set with her as well. It was pretty cool. Ah, very cool. I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> yeah, I was in the, the, um, la- that was in like last, last quarters, Fangoria. Yeah. Oh, excellent. So we know that um, In Search of Darkness 3 concentrates on straight-to-video releases, which most people see is not very good movies. Um, can you elaborate on this, and, and why was it important to do this final installment? All sorts of reasons. Uh, but the first reason was I didn't even know I was going to do In Search of Darkness. Uh, I kind of thought after doing In Search of Darkness Part 2, there's so much more to cover, but I figured maybe people would be done with it, especially when I went, you know, with some of the deeper cuts in part two. Uh, but the, 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 the cacophony for more was so overwhelming. We just thought, great, we get another opportunity to do this. And people would say more, 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 longer, longer, longer. And so it also gave you license to make the longest in search of darkness movie yet. Uh, the other the first two were about four and a half hours. This one's about five and a half, five hours for with, 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 with credits is five hours. <laughs> so, um, it, there's so much left on the table. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies made. Uh, and so, and there were still, uh, you know, everything from sequels to street to video, the shot on video. Um, people really wanted to go down that rabbit of all the really obscure titles and, and crazy ass movies that we all loved so much, uh, it, we're really fans. But the thing is, a lot of people would say, oh, it's scraping the barrel, or this is schlock, uh, or these are just terrible films. Uh, but uh, of the many messages that we have in In Search of Darkness, uh, the message really uh, that we underline is that, uh, and Sam Wyman, I think, says the best for the end of the movie, the documentary, is that, you know, our, our barometer of what films should be shouldn't be bad or good. Uh, it, it should be entertaining or not. You know, is this something that you love and that you value uh, and want to share? And that's what's important, you know, because there, there's, a, there's a, a distinction where when you're talking about, well, it's not a good movie, but, well, it, it's a great movie because you want to talk about it and, and there are things in there that you love. What these movies are about, what I've learned about in terms of the making this documentary covering decade films that are not known to be good, uh, is that all these movies are important to us for our own personal reasons. Uh, and and it, it goes beyond the film itself. It, it goes to the experience watching them. It's like nostalgia and a sense of memory. You know, where, how old were we? Where were, who were we with? You know, what was the reason why? What were the circumstances that we got to see it? Uh, we probably saw it, but we shouldn't have. Probably made an impact that we will never be able to erase, you know, by seeing certain things, you know. Violence, sex, nudity, amazing effects. Some, some iconic uh, on the character you never forget, and that we all want to be from one moment. Uh, all these movies are important to us for our own personal reasons. 
And no one can ever take that away. No remake can ever take that. Uh, these movies, especially the ones that we'd never even heard of, that we, we get to two and three, um, these movies are, are here to be celebrated, to be explained, to be cherished and shared and talked about. And I don't think anyone else is, is going out of their way to, you know, talk about Fear No Evil and talk to the director, you know, uh, Frank Belongia, and get his perspective on, on why that would be a challenge, you know? Um, so this is an opportunity to discover it, make your own decisions about it, but understand why all these movies are so important to all of us and in community. These are better movie us. Yeah, I think that it's just so important because the, the media we consume is very, very subjective, you know, like you said. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, even, even Oscar-winning films, you know, uh, there's always contentiousness around those, you know, what, what got snubbed and, and who deserved it more. Um, it's all subjective. Uh, and, uh, you know, even the Motion Picture Academy and the Oscars can say this is the cream of the crop and the best and this gets nominated. Everyone always says, well, what about this? That, you know, um, it's just like, well, we only have, we want to have a show. We want to put a spotlight on greatness. Uh, this is what we've chosen. And there's always, you can't, you just can't please all people all the time. And I discovered that we, uh, the In Search of Darkness trilogy as well. There's so many movies that we still haven't covered yet. You know, so many movies that I love that still haven't made it. And I'm the guy who gets to the side. <laughs> But you run out of time, and, and there are just hundreds left on the tape. And uh, I think it's kind of better off that, that it's like that, you know? So at the very least, when you look, watch a In Search of Darkness 1, 2, or 3, you see, in addition to the movies that we cover, we're still always making references to other films. You've got a million posters on, on a poster wall uh, every time you have a year uh, showing movies that we never cover. But at least you know they're out there. Seek them out. Or you watch the end credits and look at all the things, you know, all the clips that we've, we've credited, all the posters that we've listed. And you could use that as your jumping off point saying, oh, I've never heard. Let's check it out. Uh, there's always room for more. And uh, I think that's the best way to lead to you. Yep. Agreed. And obviously talking about the final product and in particular, In Search of Darkness Part 3, where, where, we're going to link it anyway, David, but where can people buy this? I think there was a flash sale going on last time I looked as well. So where can, where can people kind of get, get this, I guess, media, like the uh, physical copy, if you will. Yeah. Go to eighties horrordoc.com. Eight zero S horror doc, eighties horrordoc.com. Uh, and you could go to our socials, uh, at 80, sorry, at eighties horror doc. Easy for me to say. And that's on Instagram <laughs> and that's on Facebook and that's on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, you know, grab it while you can, if you miss it, uh, put your, put, give us your email, you know, there, there'll be a little form that you can click where you can, you know, sign up for like a newsletter and, and find out when it's creator VC or we're always doing new projects. Uh, we have down the pike, we have, uh, and I could talk about it, but we have, uh, you know, in search of darkness nineties is, is, is going to be crowdfunded in October. The summer we're doing In Search of Darkness Part 2. We're going to start crowdfunding for that. Uh, there's lots to keep an eye out if you are interested in uh, tackling a whole decade of filmmaking and, uh, and so. Awesome. So I'm going to ask this question to everybody, but I'm going to start with you, David. 
what is your Mount Rushmore of 80s horror movies? <laughs> I know, I know it's probably a hard one for you, but uh, we want to know. Oh, uh, well, I, I, I like to choose the ones that aren't the well-known ones. You know, uh, I, think, I think the most obvious, I will give you two answers. Uh, you know, off the top of my head, you know, the most obvious ones are F. Myers, you know, Freddy Krueger, uh, you know, Leatherface and Pinhead. You know, those guys, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not rushing. But I, I think if you find a tournament list it's more fun at least for me you know i put the american werewolf being because there who knows maybe maybe a little bit of jack as well you know um but uh the tall man from phantasm i put him up there um i put stephen king's head up there as well uh because from his brain we have so much amazing entertainment uh and um oh gosh you know the creep from creep show, you know. Let's put him up there. <laughs> or fluffy, put fluffy up instead. Yes, <laughs> I love the good answers. The crate and fluffy are my favorite uh, segment on creep that show. Is, yeah, that, that's probably the best part of the anthology. I agree. <laughs> so, Tim, what have you got? Uh it's so hard. I mean, like, I would want to throw Krampus up there. I think I'd want to throw Sam up there. I definitely need... Well, we're talking about 80s horror? No, the 80s horrors. About... Oh, just I... 80s. I'm sorry. Yeah, Michael Myers has to be up there. Um, Freddy has to be up there. Ooh. I, I probably would put Pin... pin... If, you can treat, if, you, if you can dictate... I'm already interrupting your answer. You no, it's all good. What, if you could dictate to the world what you think would be the best ones, not what, you know, the obvious choices, where, where would you go? I, I really okay, so I think I'm adding I, I, I would put Michael, Freddy, Pinhead, and I would probably put Jason. Okay. I know that seems like such a probably cliche answer. Well well I would mean something from you. That's the thing is it's your opinion. You know? I would but like I said, I would, you know, if we're adding later down the line in life, I'm adding Krampus and Sam up there as well. Right. So very cool. what about you, Gary? Um, I'm very, very similar to you in the fact, you know, Jason, Freddy, Mike, but as a child, Leatherface terrified me Oh yeah, so bad where I didn't watch the movie again till I was an adult. So I think, I think he deserves a spot up there. Very cool. And Ash? Yeah, very, very similar. What I'm going to do, I'm going to do a Mount Rushmore of like my favorite, I guess, horror movies from the eighties. So an American Werewolf in London has to be up there. Uh, I love what Rick Baker did in that. I love Videodrome. Um, I'm going to take Poltergeist mm, and The Changeling. I really love The Changeling too. Oh, very cool. Yep. Well, so uh, yet again, Rawhead Rex loses and has to walk away with his tail between his legs. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Pumpkinhead just going to have to come back and <laughs> wearing blood wings or something. <laughs> So let's go into, I guess, our bread and butter, David. So we have obviously a Halloween Horror Nights podcast. That's our main focus, if you will. So we did see the video where you inter you interviewed Hollywood's creative director, John Murdy, and had a look at their practical effects. And it was The Walking Dead season three. And I think they had yeah. evil, the, the Evil Dead remake that year. So is Halloween Horror Nights something you've like frequented to? Or is it more, did you do that more professionally for work, if you will? Well, imagine this. You work at Entertainment Tonight, and you just had to write a story about, like, you know, 
a Kardashian or something like that. <laughs> we needed a palate cleanser. And you get to go to Universal and, and, and talk or Howling Horror Nights and get, you know, a little bit of, you know, blood makeup on you and, and talk to and just play. Uh, that to me was, that's the heaven part of the job. You know, the hell is the tabloid stuff. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> um, so it was absolutely a blast for me to do it. I thought I'd share that with you guys because I knew we would absolutely appreciate it, you know? Um, but, uh, I've been to Halloween Horror Nights several times. I don't go every single year. Um, I haven't gone quite a bit, uh, in the last several years, it, whether it's because of the pandemic or because I have a kid who's too young. I just didn't have the opportunity. He's getting older now. He was up, so we will go soon enough. Um, but I've been several times, and uh, I, I absolutely love it. Um, I, I used to go there out here in California. There's there's not scary, which originated these uh, these sort of Halloween horror mazes uh, at the theme park. Uh, and I used to go there, and I thought it was super cool. And then I would I would I could see Universal from my house. I could oh, see wow. I, I open the window and I say, I could see Hogwarts from my house, <laughs> which is a, it's a, it's a factual statement. And, uh, you know, it's far off in the distance, but it's pretty cool, but I'm very close. And so, uh, I think Halloween Horror Nights of Universa is, uh, it's second to none in terms of just the thematic mazes that they make and just the, the care and, and effort they put into really appealing to people like us who love this stuff immersing us in uh, yeah. ridiculous scenarios and uh it's just super so i'm a big fan awesome awesome so david we we've come to the last question we try not to keep you as long as <laughs> as possible it's right. but it's all right so um, and i'm gonna ask everybody and we're gonna start with you first david so what 80s property do you think would translate well into a uh a, a hhn house that hasn't been used already it hasn't been used already. Uh, yeah. In Search of Darkness, the In Search of Darkness uh, uh, mates. But I guess that would that would be really good. Yeah, all the, all the transitions. That would be a huge movies, mashup right? house, right? <laughs> like that would have yeah. so many properties in it. Like that'd have to go on a soundstage too. I kind of thought, you know, like you know, uh, obviously it's a self-serving plug, but I really thought it's like you know, it, it's a all-encompassing look at a decade, and so it just gives you the. Uh, flexibility of putting all sorts of stuff each and every year in uh halloween horror nights maze you know uh and you do all sorts of things but my real answer and you guys are the experts so this might have been done before so apologies um you know my first thought and i know that this has been done and i i, I wish that i was able to go that american but um i do you tell me i don't know if it's done before but i thought a phantasm uh, Ooh, uh yeah. I don't think that's been done. Phantasm has not been. Either. No, Phantasm hasn't and, been done. Yep. And oh. I just let that's an, it, it lends itself perfectly, you know, because I think I think a hallmark of a great maze is to have a myriad of of creatures that come out at you, not just you know one type of thing. Uh, and Phantasm cousin has a kind of has it all. You know, the tall man has his minions. He's got those guys with the with the sort of miners masks. And he's got the small little Jala, you know, crushed demon creatures. You've got the, you know, the silver spears. You could set it up like mausoleum, graveyard, open graves. Yeah. Um, there's all sorts of uh, possibility, you know, with uh, a, a phantasm thing. And there's weirdness in phantasm as well, you know, like flying fuzzy creatures when 
the phantasm's uh, finger gets cut off and they save it, save it in a box. Mm-hmm. It makes it old. It's a weird flying fuzzy creature <laughs> yes. for no good reason other than that that's what it is. And, you know, Reggie's ice cream truck, you know, put it out there somewhere. And there's just uh, a load of amazing creative ideas put together. You could dodge, you could even dodge, um, you know, silver spheres attacking you. Uh, <laughs> and you can find the room where you would be going into another dimension. Yeah. Barrels. So, yeah, uh, Edwell's possibilities yeah. might be better. Awesome. Oh, yeah. What about you? What about you, Ash? So, I think I w- this has been done in part of a maze, but it's never been a full maze at all. So, I, I would take my bloody Valentine just so we have like the an icon, right? The, the you know, a focused icon throughout the maze. Um, yeah. So, I think, yeah, I think my bloody Valentine would work really well because the, the mine is pretty creepy anyway. And is, um, you know, I think that would work really well in, in a maze. Nice. And you, Gary? You know what I'm going to say. Oh, <laughs> shopping mall. Oh, I knew you were coming with that. <laughs> Wait, what's I really want to see that. What is it? Chopping mall. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> it would be so fun to be chased through a house by robots. You would have to, you'd have to have the score going on as well. 100%. I absolutely <laughs> love that cheesy 80s synth. Yeah. Plus, you Fantastic. get to walk through an, an 80s mall. That's kind of fun, too. That would be very, yeah, very cool. Definitely. Awesome. For sure. But you, Tim? Green Yes, those are fun. Um, my my pick is probably no surprise to to obviously Gary and Ash because I'm such a huge fan and it has never been at the event and I keep begging for it every year is I want to see the fog. I want to see Captain Blake oh, put into action with his crew. That would be amazing. Yeah, I like I love that movie. Yeah. Can I can I add one more? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Again, you guys would have to tell me if uh, if if it's been done before. So I told you I, I'm incapable of a single answer. But um, <laughs> uh, Creep Show, uh, based on you know Creep Show one, Creep Show two, the movies, you know everything from Fluffy to um, you know uh, old old Chief Woodenhead, like everything. Uh, yep. they because you know they're creeping up on you. There's so many opportunities because it's an anthology series. You can really spread it around and uh, have a lot of variety in movies like that. I yeah, that is a good one. Now that has Hollywood? never been used in Orlando. It's, it's, it's been it's, in Hollywood, but it was the it was the yeah. new TV show. Correct. Yeah, so you could have a classic creep show. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be perfect. I like those anthology yeah. houses where you go For through sure. different you know parts of the stories. So that'd be really cool. Yeah, awesome. Uh, before we head out of here, David, we, we, we want to give you this time to plug where to find you, your work, whatever you want to plug, go for it. Well, thanks. Okay. Well, I'll give a laundry list so people get their pens, but I'll, I'll keep nice. it. Uh, I'm probably most active actually on, on Twitter while it, you know, slowly burns all around us. Um, <laughs> and I have two, I have two handles, uh, on that and, uh, I have, at it came from blog, uh, which is a steady stream. It's like a pop culture brain dump. Things that I like to remember from from back in the day: it's toys and collectibles to movies, so on and so. And I'm also at Tiki Ambassador, and that's kind of my main handle. Uh, and uh, at it came from blog is also on uh, Facebook and Instagram. So you just go at it came from blog. A lot of this, that kind of stuff was on there. And uh, you could check out the it, it came from blog.com site 
uh, to read a lot of the stuff that I'd done and my thoughts and, and memories and interviews. Uh, awesome. Musings. And then, of course, there's the 80s horror doc uh, and 80s sci-fi doc. If you're interested in the, uh, our 80s sci-fi documentary. Awesome. Excellent. All right, lads, where can uh, people find us at? And I'm going to throw this to Ash. Yeah, so we at, are at RIP Tour Podcast. That's going to be on Twitter, Instagram. That's where we're probably most active. We also have our Discord now. We have you know well over 100 people in the Discord as well. So we'll always continue to link that every week because um, it, it does expire the uh, invitation. Uh, YouTube, yeah. we're trying to beef up as well. So we'll be on there in due course as well is that everything tim uh we have a tiktok too that we're uh, we do have a tiktok that we're looking some, to yes we are looking to beef that up stuff with as well we have a couple of ideas in the pipeline that we're gonna execute yep. hopefully very soon yep and then we have our merch on the uh, spreadsheet so yes david i seriously like this probably was like my favorite interview ever i uh. could i could sit here and listen to you tell stories all day <laughs> Honestly, like for real, this it was incredible. Thank you yep. so much for taking time out of your day to come talk with us. This this has honestly been incredible. Yeah, thank well, you, David. Thank, yeah, thanks. Thank you, guys. Thanks. It's, it's my pleasure chatting with like-minded uh, guys who understand this stuff and love it as much as I do. Uh, it's very clear from your podcast that this is the stuff you, you really love. You guys take time out of your busy day to, you know, unite and talk about the stuff all the time uh and that just blows that this is the stuff that means a lot to your hearts and so i think anyone listening who's listening to this podcast as well you know we all love this stuff so much and all i could say is uh you know pay it forward with, with positivity and not toxicity to, uh you know celebrate the stuff you love and share it with people uh, learn about it. absolutely 100 percent, absolutely all right so that's it, guys. This is our show. We will be back soon. We have another uh, episode coming up uh, pretty soon, which uh, we have some other guests coming on, uh, some other podcasts. But until then, thank you for listening. Again, thank you, David. And uh, we will see you guys and talk to you guys next time. Bye. 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 Bye.